Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. I think that whenever God blesses you with something, it's a very sacred and holy thing to proclaim that, especially kind of when God's people congregate. And so let me just take this Mother's Day on three different fronts, all right? A lot of you guys know that uh, my folks split when I was 13 years old and that my mom was a single mom for, you know, my growing up years. And a lot of you know that the person who was there whenever God saved me was my mom. Um, we, we had a lot of trials and a lot of difficulties, and my mom was the first person who taught me what it looked like to be faithful. And so I'm a very blessed man on Mother's Day to have a good and godly mom who pointed me to Jesus, not only with her words, but with her life. And she's sitting right here. And so would you do me the honor of honoring her? Yeah. So then secondly, uh, I, I met a very cute brunette by the name of Ashley Davenport. And uh, I thought to myself, wow, she's extremely cute and I would like to get to know her. And uh, by God's grace, I did, right? And we started to date and I thought she would make a fantastic wife and I should ask her. And, uh, and I did. And by God's grace, she said yes. And uh, at that point in my life, I didn't really have a framework for a good wife and a godly mom. And uh, not many people have an opportunity to be doubly blessed when it comes to both receiving motherhood and observing motherhood. And uh, I've watched my wife labor to be a good and godly mom to our three kids. And I cannot tell you how much of a blessing that is to me, how much of a safety that is to me, how much God's grace just is abounding to me, not only in giving me a good and godly mom, but giving me a goodly God, good and godly wife who points out my kids to Jesus. And so, would you thank... Yeah. And then lastly... Um, a guy by the name of Augustine referred to the church as a mother, as a woman, who uh, was a place that our faith gets incubated and developed, right? That God talks about the church in a personification. And, uh, and, and by God's grace, I've been in some churches where good and godly women uh, led me, taught me, mothered me, sistered me, were kind to me, prayed for me came alongside and put their arm around me, and this church is of no exception. And so for all of you ladies who, who serve here, who lead here, who teach here, who are wise and faithful and, and godly for us to see God's grace and to receive God's grace, I just want to thank you for the mothering and sistering that you do. And just want you to know that it's, not, it, it's being noticed. Uh, we're thankful for you. We love you. Uh, DR would not be whatever good it is without you. And so I just want to thank you today. Yeah. Mothering at any level is a, is a sacred and holy work. And so today, uh, you're here uh, because of your mama. And regardless of what has happened or how that's gone, I just want to encourage you to be grateful for God's provision of that woman in your life. 
take her to lunch, someplace better than Culver's, all right? And, uh, or call her or, or just let her know that she's appreciated. I understand that not all moms are perfect, but um, let's be thankful for the grace of God and the things that they have done well. Amen? All right, fair enough. If, you, if you're a guest with us, we are in a series called True and Better. And, uh, and the idea of this is to kind of help us wrap our head around this truth that the entire Bible isn't about a thing, it isn't about an idea, it's about a person, and his name is Jesus. And whenever you're reading the Bible, if you don't understand what he looks like or what to look for around him, you're going to get lost very, very quickly. And so we've taken a lot of the Old Testament heroes, as it were, and tried to show you how their great successes are shadowing of greater successes of Jesus uh, in the future. We've also tried to show you times when great failures reveal inadequacies and in our need for a greater hero and for a better savior, for a better king, something we've talked about a lot around here. And, and when you read through the Old Testament, you find out pretty quickly that men and women, we, we get it wrong lots of times, and we're not going to get it right unless God literally comes down and does it for us. And thankfully, that's exactly what he does. He comes down and he does it for us. And so we're going to continue in this series today. And, and today we've looked at Adam, we've looked at Noah, we looked at Abraham. Uh, Abraham is probably the most significant when you study world history. He is a central figure in three of the largest world religions, Judaism, uh, the Islamic faith, and Christianity. Uh, but the most significant leader in the Old Testament is who we're going to look at today. He is referenced in the New Testament more than any other character of the Old Testament. He's the author of the first five books of the Bible. You know the one that when you do the reading plan, you get stuck halfway through his books, right? No? You're like, no, I don't know. I, I buzzed right through Leviticus. You lie. Um, yeah, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, our guy wrote all of those stories, and, and his story is, it's epic. Uh, in fact, Ridley Scott just put a movie together around his life, and it's called, it's called Exodus, and I'd encourage you to watch it. Not everything in it's true, that's fine, okay? Uh, lots of things in it are, and it's a really interesting thing. We're going to look today at the life of Moses, all right? So why don't you stand with me? On the screen will be our text for the day. I'm going to read our text, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll start diving into it. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23, just follow along with me. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking toward the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of a king, for he endured, endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the life of Moses. I thank you for your faithfulness to him. I thank you for your faithfulness to us in showing us about him, his successes as exemplified in the greater successes of Jesus and his failures to let us know, God, that no man is without need of salvation and that you provide salvation through the person and work of Jesus. And so I pray today, God, that you would uh, both interest and enthrall us with your word and that you would 
effectively point us to Jesus so that we could worship him for who he is and what he's done. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So let me just as quickly as I can get you up to speed on the life of Moses. Moses is born at a time of a lot of, of, uh, of, of struggle and tragedy. God's people are uh, in slavery to the most powerful nation at the time, that being the nation of Egypt. They are under the thumb, as it were, of a dictator whose name was Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh is watching the people of Israel continue to make babies and get bigger and therefore get more powerful. And he hatches a really heinous plan to mitigate this. And that is that he decides that he's going to kill all of the firstborn sons of every Jewish family. I mean, can you imagine this? If, if tomorrow uh, Obama says, you know what, our nation's getting out of control and so what we're going to do is a cop is going to come by and he's going to murder your son in your house so that this nation doesn't get out of control numerically. That's, that's what happens. And what the Bible tells us is that uh, his parents hide him. They obviously don't want their son to be murdered and so they hide him. And anyone who's had a small baby knows that for a little bit of time you can kind of keep him quiet and keep him happy, keep him fed, keep him uh, sleeping well and dry and all those kind of things. And they're... Generally quiet, but there comes a point at which uh, quiet is not the word that you would use for a baby, right? Can I get an amen on Mother's Day? Yes. And so there comes a point at which Moses' mama decides uh, we have to get him out of this house and she creates essentially an ark, right? She creates a, a small boat that she is going to put her baby boy in and she uh, puts him into the Nile River and she floats him down. And let me just pause for one second here, all right? Because on Mother's Day, this is a really important uh, example for us. Uh, nobody was around whenever Moses' mama was making that boat. Nobody watched. Nobody said, hey, that's a good boat. Nobody said, good job laboring to make that boat. Nobody said, you know what, you are a hero to us because you made a good and proper No one was around to do it. But the story of Moses doesn't happen if Moses' mama isn't faithful when no one is watching. And I want, I want to encourage you moms that the enemy is going to try to say to you, what you're doing isn't significant. Nobody is watching. Nobody cares. This means nothing. You are wiping butts and noses and cleaning shirts and providing meals and nobody cares. It's not sacred. It's not holy. It's not significant. And neither are you. That's what the enemy will want to tell you. Uh, but I want you to notice something. What would have happened if uh, Moses' mama had made that little boat in a shoddy way? What would have happened if Moses' mama wouldn't have had a vision for her boy? What would have happened if Moses' mama wouldn't have done the necessary things to make space for God to show up and then to put her baby boy into, the, into that river? I mean, the Nile River was not a very calm river. There was lots of things that would like to eat small babies. She had to be faithful, and then what she had to do? She had to trust God with her kid. This is a sacred decision. And a good and godly mom, listen, creates a context 
in which she will one day ship off that baby boy or that baby girl and she will say, God, I've done everything that I can to be faithful and now it's entirely up to you. And I want to tell you as confidently as I can, listen, God sees what you are doing when nobody else does and God is faithful to honor what you are doing. It's only he can. The story of Moses doesn't happen if his mama is not good, godly, and faithful. And listen to me. The story of a lot of your kids won't happen either. And so uh, don't get weary in well-doing. Right? Be faithful. Understand that, that even though your story might be a little bit in the background for now, listen, the Bible says that the virtuous woman, that her kids will rise up and call her blessed. That's a promise of God. And listen, the story of Moses, one of the central figures who is very often not noted is Moses' mom, who did a daring, faithful, uh, brave thing in the belief that God had plans for her boy. The belief that God had plans for her boy. And so the story goes that uh, Moses drifts down the river, and, and if you don't believe in the sovereignty of providence of God, you need to read the story of Moses. Moses' little boat that his mama made not only makes it through the waves and makes it through the river, it bumps up against right where the, the uh, Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. And she opens that thing, and Moses, Moses is sitting there, and she falls in love with that baby, and the Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses. And so Moses is raised in royalty, right? He gets all of the benefits, all of the training, all of the education, and he's raised as one of Pharaoh's sons. He's the Pharaoh's daughter's son, as far as they know. There comes a point at which Moses begins to be exposed to some things. He makes some poor decisions, and God uses those decisions to take him out of Egypt take him into the wilderness for 40 years. Moses learns to shepherd, which will become important down the road. He finds himself a bride, and then one day he bumps into a bush that is on fire but not being consumed. And God says, here's what I want you to do, Mo. Mo, I want you to go back into the place that was your home. I want you to stand before who was your cousin or your brother or whatever it is, and I want you to say to them, the Hebrew people are gods, I want you to let them go. And Moses says, uh uh-huh. I, I, uh, I think you got the wrong guy. And God says to Moses, didn't, didn't I make you? Didn't I make your mouth? Didn't I make who you are? I'm telling you, I got plans and purposes for your life. Now I want you to obey me and go back. The, the story goes on that Moses goes back. He tells Pharaoh that God wants his people back. Pharaoh rejects him. And so Moses is an instrument of miraculous deeds of God over and over and over again. Ten times saying, listen, I'm better than any of your gods. And he puts Egypt through ten plagues. And on the tenth plague, Pharaoh finally relents. And God's people are released. They are free. They go off. They're going to be a nation. They're going to be able to serve God. They're going to be able to do all the things that they had hoped and dreamed. They're going back to the promised land. Moses gets all of his people together. He gets them in a big herd. Probably, uh, certainly hundreds of thousands of people. They start to go out. Pharaoh decides that he's not going to let him go, so he starts to chase him. Moses is leading the people. Pharaoh is chasing the people. Things are going semi-okay, and they come up to, to the Red Sea. Okay, they come up to the Red Sea. And I want you to uh, think about for a minute what it would have been like to have at least a million people that you were leading... To know that Pharaoh, the leader of the most vicious, most uh, effective army known to man at the time, is chasing you, not to bring you back, but to kill everybody, and God's GPS brings you to the Red Sea. 
and you are standing with death in front of you, and you have death chasing you. And I want you to imagine that if you're a Hebrew slave, what are you going to say, right? What are you going to say? And here's what they said. Mo, did, did you not think there was enough graves in Egypt? You brought us out here to get killed at the Red Sea. Like, why would you do this to us? Now, lots of different things going on. And I want you to look at Exodus chapter 21 with me. Exodus chapter 21. And I want you to read, I want you to read or listen to what happens here. Exodus chapter 14. I'm sorry. Exodus 14 and verse 13. Are you all with me? No? (laughs) Honesty. It's good. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. I want you to remember this verse right here. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. It's a very important verse. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Go on, Paul. Then Moses stretched his hand out over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Stop right there. (laughs) You got death coming behind, death coming before. Moses stands up and says, listen, God is going to fight for you. The only thing you have to do is shut your mouth. Not talking about shafts. I'm talking about Yahweh, right? Is going to fight. Are you all right? You good? He's going to do this. And God says, I want you to raise your hands to Moses. Moses raises. I mean, you've got to imagine that Moses is like, uh, okay. He raises his hand. This wind comes and God splits the Red Sea. The land in between the two walls of water are on either side, and about a million people start to walk on dry land in between. Now, listen, you're looking, and there's like all these fish, and all the, I mean, this is a pretty, pretty crazy sight. Let's go on. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and he threw the Egyptians forces into a panic. So the Israelites are going through on dry land. The Egyptians see it. They bring their horses and their chariots and they're chasing them on the way of redemption that God has made. The Israelites look back, they start to freak out and scream and run and get into a panic, and God puts the Egyptian forces into a panic. Go on. Clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily, and the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians, just like God had promised. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back on the Egyptians, and upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The water returned, covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them in the sea, and not one of them remained. Not one of them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the water being a wall to them on their left hand and on their right. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is an epic, epic story. It's an incredible story. Um, I want you to think about something with me. If you were a Hebrew slave on that day, and you had had death before you and death behind you, and you had watched some dude raise his hands and two walls of water, and you step out onto what was ocean and it's dry land, and then you take another and another and another, and you're like, is it? I can't believe this is happening. And you're walking your way through the ocean, and you're safe, and you're heading toward redemption, and then you have that moment when the Egyptians are coming after you, and you have that terror that they're going to kill everyone, and you watch God, just like a door, slowly start to close that ocean back on all of those who had oppressed you, all of those who had held you in bondage, all of those who had kept you a slave, and you watch God not only save you, but destroy your enemies like that. If you had that experience, how do you think you would feel? <laughs> how, do you think that, how do you think that you would feel if you were on this side of the Red Sea and you were looking back and you were looking at your oppressors? You were looking at those who had held you in bondage. I, I mean, <laughs> what thoughts would be going through your head? Right? I mean, you, those that were against you are all dead. You now have a straight shot to the promised land. And you just watch God miraculously do you. But maybe I would say it like this. Would, do you think that it would be fair to assume that the circumstance that those people went through would create a new kind of person? You think that's fair? You think that somebody that went through that kind of experience would be forever marked by it? And that any time that they would think maybe God isn't going to come through, someone would go, hey, remember that time when we were walking through the ocean? You would think that it would become the defining circumstance for a bunch of people and that they would always refer back to it and that it would change them from the inside out for as long as they lived. Can you give me an amen on that if you agree with that? Yes. You would think that that would be the case. (laughs) But that wasn't the case. That was not the case. Literally, you only have to go a couple chapters into the book of Exodus and, and people are saying to Moses, Moses, I'm hungry. And in Exodus, they, or in Egypt, they gave us garlic and leeks. I want garlic and leeks, man. Take us back to Egypt. Like, this isn't what we signed up for. I'm hot. I got sand in between my toes. And, and you will read Moses, right? And you, you watch Moses' temper just slowly start to get, like, I'm going to kill all you all, right? You would think that something that miraculous and that epic that Ridley Scott would make a movie out of it. You would think that those people would forever go, God's got us. God's got us. God is teaching us something very, very important here. And the book of Exodus, and actually the whole Old Testament, teaches us something important. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. We tend to think that the way to change our heart is to change our circumstance. We tend to think that the way to change our heart is the way to change our circumstance. Let me give you some examples. Whenever I felt like God put a call in my life to become a pastor... 
I remember I had a professor say to me one time, listen to me. If you don't want to study the Bible and you don't want to pray and you don't want to fast and you don't want to serve and you don't love people now, you aren't going to once you become a pastor. And you know what I thought? Yeah, I am. Sure I am. I mean, when I get to do it for a living, I'm going to love to pray. I mean, I'm going to have lots of time to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to love to serve. And listen, I'm going to fast all the time because that's what pastors do, right? And here's what happened. I became a pastor and I thought, here we go. Godly Tim is here to stay. And what happened? I hate fasting. I don't like it. I don't. I know it's important to study and I, I do enjoy studying, uh, but, but prayer can sometimes be difficult for me. Can I get an amen, anyone out there? Yeah, okay. Serving is good sometimes if I like what I have to do in order to serve. What happened? What happened was my circumstance changed. I got a nice title. I got, I got uh, you know, some element of legitimacy. I'm a pastor now. My circumstance changed, but my heart didn't. Right? My heart didn't. Now, when I first started out, I, uh, I was not making a, 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 a very large salary. And I had people who would say to me, and I would read in God's word around generosity, and, and I would say, look, I'm a pastor now, but I'm not making a lot of money. And when I do get to be making at least like a middle, middle class you know, salary... Then, generous, generous Tim. Pastor Tim, generous Tim, right? What happened? I got into that middle class territory and I'm legitimate. I've been a pastor for a little bit now. I'm not, not young pastor anymore. I'm just Pastor Tim. I'm making a decent salary and I get my paycheck and I look down at it and I say, I'll give next time. Right? Uh, this this doesn't feel quite like I thought it was going to feel. And I thought that I was going to feel like I had all this abundance and all this security and all this comfort. And then I would give. And I don't really feel that way. And so since I don't, once I start making upper middle class money, which if you ever want to be a pastor, let's not bank on that, okay? Um, <laughs> then I will start giving. Do you know what has never happened? There has never been a point at which I started to just adore giving, that I started to feel comfortable, I started to feel secure, that I started to feel like I've got all this left and I'll just give a little bit. It never happened. Why? My circumstance changed, but my heart didn't. My heart didn't. When I found out that I was going to have kids, I thought to myself, once I have kids, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to be like super dad. I'm going to be loving I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be well. I'm going to sleep well. I mean, all these things are going to come out of me once I become a parent. I mean, that's how it happens, right? Like you aren't any of those things. And then God gives you a, a screaming ball of molecular uh, inertia, right? I'm just making up words now. I don't even know what that means, right? And, uh, and, and everything changes. Uh, I heard a comedian one time, he said that he had four kids, and people say, what's it like to have four kids? And he says, it's like having three kids and drowning and someone handing you a baby. <laughs> right? Yeah, what happened when I had kids? I'm angrier than ever. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm less patient now than I was before God blessed me with these kids. I sleep less. Right? What happened? My circumstance changed, but my heart didn't. Listen, y'all, I'm not even going to talk about getting married. I'm not even going to talk about getting married. I'm not going to talk about the amount of times that I sit across from couples and all of the things that they are, they think it's just going to magically disappear when they get married. They're going to complete me. No, they ain't. They're going to expose you. They're going to expose you. I have never, ever believed that I was more sinful and more gross than as a husband. I am not playing with you. I am very serious. The godliest version of me was single with a tiny bit of money and no kids because nobody did anything to me that bugged me, right? We have this belief that, listen, once my circumstance changes, then who I am will change. And Moses' life is an incredible testimony of this. Listen, Moses leads these people out of Egypt. I mean, you've got to be a stud to lead God's people out of Egypt. You've got to be a stud to be like, and then some locusts are going to come, and here they come. Turn water into blood, like darkness and flies and all that. Like, you've got you to love God. You've got to be a legit guy. What happens to Moses? Moses gets right up to the promised land. The people start to gripe. God says, talk to the rock. And Moses says, I'm going to talk to it. And he smashes it, right? And God says, guess what? You don't get to go into the promised land. What happened to Moses? Moses, uh, his circumstances didn't change enough to change him. It just exposed him. It exposed him. And here's what you need to understand. Moses could only lead Israel to a change of venue. He could only change their circumstances. And the reason that they're always complaining, always griping, always snotty and stupid and obnoxious is because every time their circumstance changed, their heart didn't. Their heart didn't. Now, when you think about Jesus in this context, let's just take a step back from this for a moment. The similarities between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus are are pretty incredible. Jesus leaves a heavenly and royal home to redeem a people who are in bondage. Jesus is born at a time under a heinous decree. What's going on? Jesus is born at a time when every male under two is to be executed. And his parents leave and they go into Egypt so that their child will be saved. Does that sound familiar? Jesus, before he is used mightily by God, spends 40 days in the wilderness. Moses spent 40 years. Jesus spends 40 days. Jesus performs miracles to show his supremacy. Remember when John the Baptist sends his followers and says, the followers say, how do we know that you're the guy? And Jesus says, tell John what you're seeing and what you're hearing. And he's healing people. He's healing the blind. He's healing the sick. Why? I'm the guy. Look at what I'm doing. Moses, my God is the real God. Look at what he does. Okay? And so we could go on and on and on with this, but the similarities uh, are just to kind of lead us up to this intersection when it comes to Jesus. So I want you to think about this for a minute. In Exodus, the problem is out there in them. Right? Like you read through the book of Exodus, you watch Ridley Scott's movie, and you go, I hate this Pharaoh guy. 
I, I can't believe these people are in literal, physical bondage. I can't believe that they're slaves. They need to, Pharaoh needs to go away and they need to be brought out of slavery. The problem, the enemy is out there it's, and it's them. When Jesus comes along, he starts teaching that the problem is in here in me. Right? And this is the reason that Jesus has to die versus be a good leader and teacher. I want you to think about this for a minute. Moses was a great leader and an adequate communicator, and the only thing that he could change for God's people is their circumstance. Why wasn't Jesus just a good leader and a good teacher? Because the problem was deeper. Because the problem was deeper than that. And it's also the reason, think about this for a minute, that the disciples, whenever Jesus says, I'm going to die on a tree and be risen again three days later, what did the disciples say? What? And what did Peter say? That's not true. Why? Because Peter's framework was like ours. Just change the circumstance. Jesus... Just overthrow Rome, you set up a kingdom, we'll help you out with all that, all this external stuff, that's the problem. You change that, and we'll be good. Jesus comes along and says, my kingdom isn't about finishing first, it's about finishing last, and those who finish last are going to finish first, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again, and the people of God go, we just want you to change the out there and them. And Jesus says, that's not the problem. I can change your circumstance, I can change your venue, but it's not going to change you. Why does God teach us about the people of Israel to the point that you just want to throw your Bible across the room? Right? Like, what is wrong with these people? Every time God does something for them, they whine and complain and betray Him and rebel against Him. I mean, what kind of idiots go through the Red Sea and aren't forever marked by it? The kind of people who think that change only happens by circumstance. And so God's trying to teach us this is deeper. This is more problematic. This is something that requires a greater redemption and a greater Savior. And so God raises up a deliverer. In the same way that God raised a deliverer named Moses, in our case, when we understand that the problem isn't out there in them, it's in here in us, God raises up a deliverer and Savior and His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And God tells us the story that before us is the sea of our sin. We're stuck up against it. And behind us is the justice of God. That the wages of sin is what? Death is certain. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? You need somebody to save you. Somebody to do something that you can't do yourself. And so in the same way that God said to Moses, raise your hands, God says to his son, raise your hands. And listen, in the same way that God tells Moses to tell the people, listen to this, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. In other words, I don't need your help. I don't need you to earn it. I don't need you to, to match the standard. I don't need you to say the right words. I don't need you to pray the right prayer. I just need you to stand there and watch. And when I split the sea, go, that wasn't me. I just need you to look at the cross 
and keep your mouth shut and say, he saved me and I receive his fight on my behalf. I couldn't have done that. I have tried. I have changed everything. Only Jesus could have saved me like that. Only Jesus could have done that. Right? Now let's take a step back and let's think about this. The best that the world can offer you is a change of circumstance. You don't like your job? Get a new one. You don't like your spouse? Get a new one. You don't want to hang out with your kids? Don't. You don't like where you live? Move. I'm going to be honest with you. And this is going to be maybe a little bit controversial, but it's amazing to me the amount of things that the world is telling people they can change if they're not happy with it. You don't want to be that anymore? Don't be. We'll interview you on TV. You don't like it, just change it. And if you change it, then you'll be happy, and that's the point. But what happens? What happens? What happens is that uh, I get a new spouse, and after about a year, I don't like him any more than I liked the last one. I move to a new city, and the same things that bug me about that old city, they're different things, but I'm still bugged. I get a new job, and that boss who is as obnoxious, uh, I mean... Hard to believe, but I found his twin. And so what do people do? They move and they move and they move and they move. They walk through Red Sea after Red Sea after Red Sea and they're never marked. They're never changed. God then comes along and he says, I've got a deliverer for you. And that deliverer is one day going to make all things new. God promises that one day he is going to change our circumstance, doesn't he? One day, he's going to wipe away every tear. One day, there's going to be no grief, there's going to be no sorrow, there's going to be no war, there's going to be no disagreement. He says the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the the kid will reach his hand into the hole of the snake. There will be perfect peace, because the prince of peace will make all things new. One day. But until that day, God isn't going to change out there and them. He's going to change you and me. He's going to change you and me. And the way that he's going to change you isn't by giving you a new job, a new spouse, uh, more money, new kids. He's going to give you, wait for it, a new heart. Yeah. Ezekiel. Chapter 36, look at it with me. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God says the problem isn't out there. The problem is your heart. And by my grace and the work of my son, I can give you a new one. I can give you a new one. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. And they will be my people and I will be their God and they will return to me with their whole heart. Not a divided heart, not a broken heart, not a smashed heart, not a betrayed heart, not a damaged heart. A whole heart, a new heart. Look at 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. Jesus is not our true and better because Jesus changes our circumstance. 
Jesus is our true and better because he changes our heart. And the victory of him changing our heart is greater than any circumstance. Right? And so here's what I want to do today. Listen, for some of you, you have, you have tried all of the things to get the life that you want. You, you have changed this and that and this and that. I mean, you have moved all of the cards around and you are frustrated. Can I tell you, thank God for it. The more frustrated you are, the closer you are to a new heart. The the more ticked off you are, the more damaged you feel, the closer you are to a new heart. Listen, you say, Tim, that's so cruel of you to say. Listen to me, some of us, we just need to figure out that the problem isn't out there, it's me. And that I need somebody to change me from the inside out. And Jesus raises his hands and says, I'll fight for you. I'll fight for you. I'll change you right here today. Listen, today God can give you a new heart sitting right there. There's no magic incantation. It's just simply, God, my heart is broken and I need a new one. Jesus says he can give me one. I want it. That's what I want. For some of us, we get that new heart and then we think that God wants us to start working hard to maintain that good heart. And so we go to church and we change our clothes, and we change what we listen to, and we change what we watch, and we change who we hang out with, we change all of these things, and here's what happens. Over time, all of that activity begins to make your heart what? Hard. Doesn't it? And so, for some of you, for the first time, I, I, I would love for you to just tap, tap out. I just, I just need someone to save me, man. I'm done changing out there. I just am asking God that you would change me. And I don't know what happens beyond that, but would you change me from the inside out? And others of you, God has changed you and you're trying to maintain that heart. And here's what I say to you. The Lord will fight for you and it is up to you to be silent. What's a Christian? It's not somebody who maintains the heart. It's somebody who rejoices that they have a new heart. And that rejoicing sanctifies them, it changes them, it transforms them. Listen, a Christian is not somebody who runs as hard as they can to maintain what God did. It's not somebody who takes swimming lessons because they walk through the Red Sea. Somebody who gets to the other end and goes, only God could do that. And they remind one another at every chance they get who God is and what God has done. And we call that today church. It is up to us to acknowledge who has fought for us and for us to be silent, for us to receive, for us to be grateful, for us to be changed by who God is. Jesus is our true and better Moses. Is he not? Absolutely. All right, stand with me. A couple ways that I'd like you to respond. I know it's getting late. Hang in there. A couple ways I'd like you to respond. One is just the opportunity to sing. Moses gets on the other end of the Red Sea, and what does he do? Does anyone know? What's he write? He writes a song. He writes a song. And, and we sing praise to God because he has brought us through the Red Sea. And so you have an opportunity to sing. We take communion as God's people every single week to remind ourselves who God is and what he has done. If you're in here today and you've got questions, thoughts, concerns, you want to talk to somebody, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray for you to my left, to your right. All right? Let me pray. God, I thank you today. I thank you today that uh, you have not only changed my heart, but in many ways you have changed my circumstance. 
And God, I thank you by your grace and through your Holy Spirit that you have led me to the place to understand that the order is important. That my circumstances don't change my heart, but if you'll change my heart, you'll lead my circumstances. And God, for some of us today, we just need to submit our lives to you and say, here is everything. My circumstances are a mess. My heart is broken and hard. I need a new heart. And understand that when we give our heart to a good and faithful and trustworthy God, He not only changes us on the inside, but in many ways He'll change us on the outside. God, I desire that so greatly for so many people in here today. I desire for you to save and renew and transform as you will all things one day. But God, would you do it in the hearts of people today? For your glory, we ask this. And so that we can see it, rejoice in it, be marked by it. We love you, God. We love you because you loved us first. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.